Spotlights. You're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 418. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, a.k.a. Agent Japan, because I just returned from Japan. Uh, how jet-lagged are you? I am I feel insane, because um, right now it's about 10 o'clock at night, oh, um, yeah. my time. So I'm, I'm getting into the New York time. I'm working on it. Sure. Yeah, I get it. Uh, I was up until 2 a.m. with the baby last night. Oh, this Ryan. is good. And on that note, let's get into things. Uh, top news this week all around MCM Comic Con London uh, because there were new books announced and there were new toys announced. Uh, we're going to focus on the books here up top. These are sort of set in the post House of X, Powers of Ten world. So House of X and Powers of Ten are two comic book series that have been running complementarily to each other, telling the story of what's going on with the X-Men, one focusing on Moira McTaggart uh, and the other really focusing on the X-Folks. And uh, lots of stuff has been going on, but I'm really excited about this first book, which is Giant, Size, X-Men, Jean Grey, and Emma Frost. And in this um, this new X-Men world, they live on Krakoa, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. Mutants don't die anymore, and all the mutants are trying to come to Krakoa to live. There's a lot of political stuff. This one's really cool because it's written by Jonathan Hickman, mm-hmm. and it's going to have art by Russell Dodderman and Matt Wilson, which... So good. I think I don't think I've ever seen them do X characters except maybe a cover here or there. Yeah, I think of them as the Thor guys. Yeah. But, you know, Giant Size X-Men is a really iconic series, so it's incredible to see it come back. You know, it kicked off in 1975, and it that first issue I think is so iconic because it's that image you think of with Storm and Nightcrawler and Colossus and basically all of the X-Men that Professor X collected from across the world instead of just the United States. Yeah, this one is really neat because, one, there's a moment in House of X number six, maybe, or Powers of Ten number six, right at the end of the those series. And so everybody's like partying and there's fireworks and like dancing and you get these little vignette moments with all the characters. Spoilers if you've not read the end of this, but... Come on, y'all. You had to have read it. It's Catch amazing. <laughs> uh, and, and at the end, there's a moment where Jean is sitting with Emma, and I believe she hands her, like, two beers. And and Emma's like, ugh. And then she's like, come on. Here you go. And it's like this, okay, we're going to try to work together. And this, I feel like, is the, the next moment from that and seeing what that means. Very excited. All right, here we go. Next title coming at you is X-Men slash Fantastic Four. It's written by our funny boy Chip Zdarsky with the art team of Terry and Rachel Dodson, who I never realized were married until today, and colorist Laura Martin. That's such an amazing team. Just Laura is one of the best colorists. Terry and Rachel, so friggin' good. Uh, and then, of course, you got Chippy Chip Chip. I'm very excited for Eisner this one. Eisner Award winning I know. Chip Zdarsky, our Ugh. boy Chippy. Yeah. Uh, this one is all about the sort of events of Dawn of X, which is the rollout of all of these titles coming out of uh, House of X and Powers of Ten. This one is interesting because it's something I think a lot of fans were thinking of. What about the Richards kids, specifically Franklin Richards, because he is a mutant? Yeah, he's playing double duty. Scott Summers has invited Franklin to Krakoa. Will he go? Dun, 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 dun. I hope so. If not, it sounds like there's no book. We also showed a little bit more of Wolverine number one. That is by Benjamin Percy, Adam Kubert, and Victor Bogdanovich. Uh, that one we announced 
at New York Comic Con, mm-hmm. but this one is starting to give a little bit more information. Uh, a lot of this stuff you can check out on Marvel.com right now. There's also some cool stuff coming from the Robert E. Howard estate, the sort of Conan the Barbarian universe. This one is Dark Agnes. It's a five-issue limited series with writer Becky Cloonan with art by Luca Pizzari. This is going to be about Agnes de Chastillon and her journey as she frees herself from an arranged marriage, and then she goes to live a very dangerous life as a sellsword in 16th century France. So we're talking badass lady just being like, I live my own life. I'm an independent woman. I cut people for money. Yeah. This one is neat because Dark Agnes has never been in a Marvel comic, so she is going to first show up in Conan Serpent War that comes out, uh, I think that starts in December. And then this will happen, her book will happen in February. But uh, Conan's going to have Battle for the Serpent Crown, Serpent War, all the serpent stuff. Anyway, we have more stuff to talk about. Uh, also announced at MCM Expo, Spider-Man Noir, number one, written by Margie Stoll with art by Juan Ferreira. I didn't know about this. I know. That's so awesome. I'm glad Margie Stoll is... Uh Back at it again. You guys loved her Life of Captain Marvel run, uh, as well as her other work with Captain Marvel. So get and excited. Juan Ferreira is among my top five current favorite artists. He is masterful. The two of them together are going to make something horrifying and amazing. I can't wait. Yeah. We also have Marvel's Anthology Number 1. It is a new six-issue limited series. It's co-written and curated by Alex Ross with a framing story by Steve Darnell. And it's a thematic sequel to Marvel's That Awesome series that came out just about 20 years ago now. I saw some stuff about new characters showing up in the Marvel's Anthology. So good. There's (laughs) some really neat stuff coming out of that. Uh, So I'm very excited about Marvel's Anthology. Uh, I had teased you about the new toys that were announced at MCM London Comic Con and uh, during the Paris Comic Con. Uh, They have some new Marvel Legends coming from Hasbro. Lorraine, you know what Marvel Legends are? They're action figures, essentially, but they're really cool because they do a series of all kinds of Marvel comic characters. So not just like your Iron Mans and your Captain Americas, but you'll see someone like Living Laser. uh, And you'll see really like these characters that are from across the Marvel Universe, from all decades, from different years, different looks, different styles. Uh, and they're super fun and to collect, and sometimes they have, like, Build-A-Figs and whatnot. Yeah. It's good. But announced recently uh, were a Super Scroll Build-A-Figure, which is going to be awesome. I love the Build-A-Figures. Uh, that's coming in spring 2020, as well as a Spy Master figure. You were talking about, like, deep dive characters. They're doing a Spy Master figure. That is wild to me. I don't even know that much about Spymaster. I know he has a cool costume, but that's about it. Um, They also have a strong guy Build-A-Fig from the Deadpool series. That's going to be available in fall of 2020. But who doesn't love strong guy? What a weird muscle man. He's like diamond shaped. (laughs) (laughs) He's like real broad up top and it goes down a little skinny. Um, That's all the hype stuff for us to talk about this week. Of course, there'll be more. Check out Marvel.com for updates and all the Marvel social channels. But we got to talk about this week in Marvel history where we run down all kinds of stuff that uh, we've been doing this year because we're celebrating Marvel's 80th anniversary. We're going to look at a slice of Marvel history one week, seven days, November 1st through the 7th. Uh, I will kick it off with November 2nd, 1961 uh, because Tim Booba debuts an elite story of Amazing Adult Fantasy Number 9 by Stan Lee and Steve Dick. Ba recently popped up in Monsters Unleashed, but this original story is actually 
terrific. Really, though, as I was reading this issue, and one of the main reasons why I made sure to keep this in our history rundown is because Stan and Steve do every story in this issue, and they are really good. They're full of incredible Ditko art, really great Twilight Zone-style twists and turns. It's fun because Amazing Adult Fantasy becomes Amazing Fantasy, which gives us Spider-Man, but it failed. Amazing Adult Fantasy to Amazing Fantasy was like a failing book, but the stories in here are so good. It's all on Marvel Unlimited. You should check it out. Uh, November 5th, 1963, Baron Strucker debuts in Sergeant Fury number five, set during World War II. Um, this story was real neat. Fury gets a challenge for a sword duel from Baron, from Baron Zemo, and he's like, I can't help but accept. I'm going to sneak out and go do it. It's like, you ding dong, of course it's a trap. Uh, the Nazi, Baron Zemo, can't help but cheat, poisoning Fury and filming the whole deal for propaganda. Uh, fortunately, Fury and the Howling Commandos get the last laugh, beat the crap out of uh, Strucker and his people. Uh, Strucker would actually then go on to remain a thorn in their side well after the war, has one of the greatest weapons in Marvel Comics, the Satan Claw. It's a big claw. Uh, and uh, the credits uh, of this issue I thought were really interesting. They remind you of the service that Stan and Jack gave to their country where it says, written by ex-Sergeant Stanley, U.S. Army, illustrated by ex-infantryman Jack Kirby, U.S. Army. That was nice. Oh, that is nice. November 3rd, 1964, we get Journey into Mystery number 112 by Stanley and Jack Kirby, and it's awesome Kirby's pencils with Chickstone's inks make for some of Jack's tightest, raddest work of the time. And we get to see a Hulk versus Thor fight, which is iconic. Uh, one in which Hulk even lifts Mjolnir because Odin removed the hammers and shamits for, you know, five minutes. Uh, also, Odin watching the fight from afar while drinking in his throne is a mood. Just yes. like, entertain me. Uh, he's, he's got like a <laughs> portal open where he's just like, whatever, my son, he's the worst. <laughs> I'm going to watch my son get the crap beat out of him yeah <laughs> and in the tales of asgard story stan and jack introduce Luffy in a tale recounting odin and how he came upon him as baby loki Luffy, of course being the king of the frost giants and a straight up blue jerk um also that day uncanny x-men number nine by stan and jack with Chickstone's Fabulous Inks once again, featuring the first meeting between the X-Men and the Avengers. In Mighty Marvel fashion, they start out at odds, they tussle a bit, and then depart as comrades. This issue also features the first appearance of the villain Lucifer, whom we find out is responsible for Xavier losing the use of his legs. All right, November 5th, 1968, all hail Steranko! Get out your mock turtlenecks and get ready to party. I love Steranko. Every bit of him from his real world, like everything he is, he is the best. Jim Stranko, amazing, amazing writer, artist. Uh, Look, from the cover of Captain America number 110 to the huge double page spread that kicks off the big fight between Cap and Bucky and Hydra to the final very somber panel. It is a masterful issue, one of many he worked on, Uh, but it's also important because it introduces Madam Hydra. And Rick Jones dons Bucky's costume for the first time, even arguing with Cap about wearing it. Cap's like, take that off, blah, blah, blah. And Rick's like, hey, shut up, old man. You know, everybody, <laughs> lo- he like tells you, like, everybody loses someone. We have to move on. It's like, and Cap's like, okay, all right, let's do this. Put on your little booties and let's go. All right, November 3rd, 1970, after co-starring in the series for a while, Sam Wilson finally gets his name on the title as Captain America, and it becomes... Captain America and the Falcon by Stan Lee and Gene Colan. Yep, yep, yep. 
November 4th, 1975, the White Tiger, a.k.a. Hector Ayala, a.k.a. Marvel's first Latin superhero, debuts in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, number 19. Uh, Marvel.com did a really cool piece on White Tiger for Hispanic Heritage Month and spoke with George, which, legend, uh, the whole black and white magazine is just jam-packed with rad 1970s kung fu stuff, so definitely worth reading. Uh, November 5th, 1985, Rita Damara debuts as the second Yellow Jacket in Avengers number 264 by Roger Stern, John Buscema, and Tom Palmer. Rita steals Pym's Yellow Jacket costume and tech straight out of Avengers Mansion. There's uh, this great scene where she's in a van outside the mansion and she's like using some remote control business and she gets to the costume and she makes the costume sort of like walk upstairs and come out of the building and come into her... <laughs> Her weird, creepy stalker van. Uh, Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. the Wasp, gets really pissed off and beats the crap out of her. It's great. (laughs) Ah, I love it. All right. November 5th, 1997, Scott Lobdell and Alan Davis bring the Fantastic Four back to the Marvel Universe after Heroes Reborn. As part of Heroes Return, because after they were reborn, they had to return. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because they kind of died. They were in the Franklin Richards pocket universe. Uh, November 5th, 2008, Blue Marvel debuts in Adam Legend of the Blue Marvel, number one by Kevin Graveau and Matt Broom. The series tells of an incredibly powerful hero from decades past who was forced to step down and retire because of the color of his skin. Uh, this is his reintroduction into the modern world. I love Adam Brashear, a.k.a. He's- Rad. Yeah, Blue Marvel. Uh, he's super cool. He's got the salt and pepper uh, hair. He's he's the strongest person basically just about ever. He freaking like tore a comet in half or something. Yeah. He's, he's crazy. Uh, and he's incredibly smart. He's like Reed Richards level intelligent. So cool. And I'm, he's also like better than Reed Richards. Sorry, personal opinion here. But with because you. he is also very kind and thoughtful yep. and yep. meditative. Yep. And is like a good person and isn't a garbage pail. Yeah. Take that. Yeah. I love Blue Marvel and uh, I'm glad that we had this series introducing him. And then, you know, if you want some more Blue Marvel, check out the Ultimates uh, books by Al Ewing and many others. November 7th, 2014, based off characters created for Marvel, Big Hero 6 opens in theaters. I love the movie. It's so cute. It brings me joy. It's very cute. November 4th, 2015, Gwenpool makes her full debut, not just on a variant cover, in Howard the Duck number one from 2015. Uh, This is the second Howard the Duck number one from 2015. Got to make sure you understand that. Uh, She makes her debut in a backup story with Howard and Black Cat. Uh, It's written by Christopher Hastings, art by Danilo Bayruth. One of the fun things is talking to creators who are like, I don't know about her. I'm not sure like what this character is. But then they start reading her stories and knowing what she's capable of and then writing her and like, oh, my God, she's so cool. I can do all these fun things with her. I think because I wrote a, uh, a section about Gwynpool in my book and that was one of my favorite things to write because as a writer, she breaks the fourth wall. So it's your only chance to like as a writer get to say hey audience what's up suckers what's going on i can and like she breaks everything and she gets into trouble it's just the most fun to write wait lorraine what book are you talking about marvel powers of a girl available in stores everywhere you're welcome world (laughs) oh let's not forget this last one november 3rd 2017 very recently marvel studios thor ragnarok smashes and soars into theaters we get hella we get um funny times we get a thor cut hulk butt 
Hulk butt Thor cut. That's what we get in there. Because he gets the little buzzy cut from yeah. our, our man Stan. Looks good. Yeah, he's a sassy boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to talk about, though, the top books from this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List, which is a podcast that I co-host with Tucker Marcus. We read all the Marvel comics that come out every week, and then we talk about them. But what are your picks this week? Ooh, we've got Fantastic Four Grand Design number one, Silver Surfer Black number five, Doctor Strange Annual number one, and Venom number 19. Yeah, you guys should go listen to the pull list uh, wherever you listen to your podcast or on Marvel.com because it's a darn good time. Uh, So, yeah, we picked Doctor Strange Annual number one, which I think is perfect because that is written by Teeny Howard, who is our interview this week week uh teeny this week has excalibur number one which i also say on marvel's pull list is a just consider it a pick even though it's not one of our official picks it's like all the dawn of x books are pretty much auto picks uh we have excalibur number one by teeny dr strange annual number one and strike force number two teeny is awesome she's only been uh working for us for a couple years but she's you know coming like gangbusters she's exclusive uh also you guys gotta check out the women of marvel podcast next week for a look at how comic books and specifically excalibur get made teeny and artist marcus toe and editor jordan d white are on the show which is going to be a festive chat i'm sure you have just finished uh, your first official full Marvel Comics retreat. That's right. I was in the room with, uh, with everyone. You know, it was it was it was fine. I was gonna make a joke about how it was a bloodbath, but it really wasn't. It was like really wonderful. Um, I'm exhausted, but I'm creatively jazzed. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hanging out with you guys today, and then I'm back next week for more secret X Men shenanigans in which. We put gates outside all the offices so no non-mutants can come in and hear us talk. All the bloggers are like, no, <laughs> let me on a Krakoa. No, no, only us. Uh, we'll get to all that in a little bit, but I want to start off first with uh, what is your Marvel origin story? Like, how did you first become a fan and get connected to the characters? What was it for you? Sure. I've always been a big fan of reading comics as a medium. I was always that kid who, like, anything I could find that was a comic. I mean, just something about it just appealed to my brain, and I, I read a lot of you know, everything from newspaper comics to manga to, you know, a few superhero comics here and there. But the unfortunate thing is that being a little girl in the 90s, I didn't really feel comfortable in a lot of comic shops because a lot of them weren't super friendly places. So most of the time when I read comics, it was because they belonged to my cousin or I got them at the library. But oh boy, did I love the X-Men cartoon. (laughs) Oh boy, did I like to put on a raincoat and sunglasses and dress up as Jubilee and run around. (laughs) And I had been reading so many other comics for so long that I guess I had that thought of like, why well, read other comics, not superhero comics, right? Like a lot of people do. Until uh, my husband and one of my best friends were kind of like, we're going to change your damn mind. We're going to do it. And oh my God, I was like, oh, like this is now my new favorite thing, my, my new obsession. Um, so from there, I absolutely fell head over heels in love with the, the my still uh, center of my heart, my glowing heart, which is Iron Man. Uh, I fell so head over heels for for Tony, and and, and to me, he is the um, he's my you know to a lot of people it's Spider Man, right? That's the character that they like yeah. grew up, they saw themselves. So when I discovered Iron Man, I was like working at a job that I didn't really like, and I felt like it was really unethical, and I felt like I had more and better things to give the world. So of course, I fell in love with this dude. He was going through everything that I was going through at the time, and that's so often how we fall in love with characters. 
So I, I kind of, you know, Iron Man became the center of the Marvel Universe to me. And then I, I felt like I read everything that, you know, involved him. And from them, it just it, it branched out. And I just, you know, I, I read a ton of, of Captain America and I read a ton of X-Men and I read a ton of Daredevil. Like, it's just a super exciting time when you enter a new world. And especially when you're someone like in my case, you know, being a little girl, I, I didn't always feel like super welcome in these spaces. So when the world kind of, I felt like when I got in and it unlocked and revealed itself to me and I found the things in, in the Marvel universe that made me feel the way they made other fans feel, that was awesome to me. That was when I was like, all right, like this is my world now too. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating that you mentioned Iron Man. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say Iron Man, which I think is so cool. Cause I, I don't hear that so often with there particular stories that you really like connected with yeah so uh i like a lot of people i I really liked him in like ultimates and i thought you know a lot of what he was doing in civil war is fascinating i I love a tragedy as someone that had like was kind of newer to the marvel universe i saw it less as like this guy is going against everyone that we love and more like this guy is doing what he thinks is right and it's a tragedy that it's he's wrong and he's losing everyone around him in the process and because he's so used to being someone that works alone and trusts his own mind to literally save his life um, he's so used to being like, no, it's okay, guys, I got this, that that impulse is causing him to spin out of control and it's a tragedy. You know, watching him have the the negative consequences of his actions, that that infamous moment where he's, you know, sitting on the helicarrier with Cap's body and he's like, it wasn't worth it. That is what makes Tony a hero to me still, is that even if he couldn't tell anyone else, he knows he has a moral compass. Um, and like for me, the those stories were, were really impressive to me. And the thing that I, I loved you know, kind of ref that was was uh, Matt Fraction and Salaraka's Invincible Iron Man run. That story was really important to me because so much of it was about Tony as a character. It stripped him down to so many of his bare things. There were so many moments where he had to rely on people to take care of him. Uh, there's a lot of fallout of Civil War in those issues. There's a lot of, you know, one of my favorite things about Tony, which is like, <laughs> I've said this before, Tony has very, very high intelligence. Pepper has a higher wisdom score. Um <laughs> So I love like the people that take care of him in his life. So those, those stories were all really important to me. And they were happening in a part in my life where I had just kind of become an adult. And I had been like, well, I'm, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but uh, I think I'm pretty smart, uh, which is an unfortunate thing to say when you're being recorded. But I do unfortunately think I'm pretty smart. And It's uh, okay to have a little ego. Yeah. And I was like, uh, I'm going to go and, and you know, build my place in this world. And, and you know, I kind of had that feeling where it was like, yeah, yeah. Um, there are people in the world that if you're if you're smart, you don't have a heart, they'll take advantage of you mm. and they'll put you in a position where they use your brain for things you don't want to use your brain for. Um, so, yeah, Tony was really resonant to that for me and in a lot of ways gave me the bravery to become a comic book writer. That's cool. Um, to break out of jobs where I didn't feel like, you, were, you know, where I felt like, hey, this boardroom isn't helping the world. Turning into <laughs> Iron Man will help the world. I had that moment myself. Nice. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, being a comic writer, which you are, uh, and you were talking about the books that you were reading. So that's, you know, mid to late 2000s. Uh, how'd you get started in actually being a comic writer? So uh, when I was, you know, just deeply a fan and I had gotten, you know, Iron Man was the the, the first character for whom I, I braved going into a shop and opening up a pull list because I was like, I, I won every issue of this book. And he was, you know, and, and from there, of course, I branched out and started reading a ton of other books because as a lot of you who are listening probably are regular comic shop goers, uh, people often, you know, go in for just this one book and then they see the other one. And, the, and before you know it, you're pulling 15 books a week and yeah. you're bank account is screaming at you and 
You're happy, though. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I was reading a lot of comics. I was just reading more and more and being at a shop and having a less limited selection than I'd had at, like, libraries and bookstores was opening me up to just more and more of the culture of not just comics, but also being a comics fan and talking to other comics fans. And um, a big part of it was was reading that Invincible Iron Man run and being like, oh, I I love this. I love this as much as I loved, you know, the, the weird non-superhero comics I was reading growing up. And, um, you know, I think I, I think I could write a superhero if I wrote him like this. And I didn't, I hadn't really known that writing a superhero like that was an option. So I kind of like started like, cause that was the first thing of, of uh, Matt Fractions I'd ever read. So sort of like looking into him and then looking at other people and then being like, wait, you know, cause I'm, I'm old. I started reading comics before the internet, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, now the internet was a thing. I was looking more and more into, you know, um, well, who are these people that are writing the books I like? And the big thing I discovered was I thought a lot of more of them were artists. I thought, that a lot of them were, were, were to be a comic, you know, writer. Sure, even if I knew, you know, that these people weren't drawing the books, but like I knew Neil Gaiman wasn't an artist, like, but I, it never occurred to me that like he actually isn't an artist at all. Yeah. So once I discovered that and I started looking more and more and, and it was a time where, you know, comic writers, a lot of them have blogs or newsletters. And like to this day, I get the, like the Warren Ellis newsletter. I love it. Like, um, and it was fascinating to me. And I was like, oh my God, these, these people are writers. They just have weird speculative brains <laughs> like me where my favorite way to write a story is to look at the established stuff and build on it. I, I love a sandbox. So I started Googling. I Googled, you know, how to, how to be a comic writer. How do you do this? <laughs> um, and found out that, you know, a lot of it is about making a comic uh, get seen. And I, I didn't really have a ton of ways to do that. But I was determined to find one. So I'd been going to conventions for a long time because I was really into cosplay. I loved cosplaying. I still love costumes. And I'm I'm horrible to watch a movie with that has bad costumes because I'll point out every zipper I see in Game of Thrones. But <laughs> I assume you talk about cosplay on Women of Marvel. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Judy, actually, fun fact, our, our friend Judy, uh, fr- who you all I'm sure know, used to take photos of me before we knew each other. You know, she would do photo shoots of Marvel characters because we're all just nerds. And and I would, you know, so she's embarrassed me on panels with pictures of me as Spider-Woman. Delightful. And uh, but I, you know, I've just started posting on Twitter. I'll embarrass myself first. Get ahead of her. (laughs) But yeah, I was was going to cons as a cosplayer and I I started going and I would, you know, do this weird thing where I would uh, I would bring something that wasn't a costume. I would bring just like a a nice, semi-cool, professional looking outfit that I could put on and walk around and ask writers questions and ask artists questions and see if any artists wanted to work with me. And, you know, I, I met some amazing people who to this day are my friends. Um, you know, there's a comic artist named Eric Donovan who is from a similar part of the world as me. And, um, you know, I met him at a con and as a little, you know, like baby wannabe writer and uh, asked him if I could send him a script. And he was kind enough to get back and basically be like, was really valuable. He was basically like, I, I can't really draw this, but uh, but I can tell you how to write for an artist better because some of what you're doing here is not writing for an artist. Mm. And like, he's still a friend of mine to this day and that was really valuable. And I just, you know, I did a lot of research and I'm, I'm really determined. I'm like a pit bull. Like I, I knew what I wanted to do and I was determined to find a way in. So I submitted to a lot of anthologies and stuff like that and I kept getting no's and I, I knew that, you know, I couldn't just uh, get a plane ticket to New York and knock on the door downstairs and, and get let in. I, I knew that that wasn't really an option, that I had to make a comic and I had to find a way to do it and to pay an artist 
and all that. Uh, and I entered a, a talent contest. There's a company out a talent contest, and I wrote a script, and it won. And they made a comic, and then I had a comic. It had my name on it, and it written all the parts of it, and a wonderful artist had drawn all of it, and it looked like as real a comic, and it even came out in shops, and yeah. and I could take it um, around, and it became like that first part of my portfolio. And from there, I just kept doing it. I was like, cool, googling and hustling worked. Let's keep googling and hustling until we're sitting at a table doing this week in Marvel with Ryan. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's always the goal. I talk to so many people. Yeah. They're like, the goal is to get to Twim. I need to get to the room in, with Ryan. That's what I need. <laughs> uh, so that was what? The Top Cow Talent Hunt? Yeah, that's right. right. In 2013? 2013. And then it was published in 14? Or yep. Yeah. yeah. So five years later is uh-huh. where we are now, which to me is really cool. Where did you think – did you have a thought about where you would be in five years in terms of the career, in terms of making comics and, and telling stories? Uh, and, you know, the thing I always tell people is uh, I sometimes feel at a loss because where I am now felt like my 20-year endgame, not my, my five-year endgame. So I guess now I'm going to, like, go start farming goats or something. <laughs> uh, I don't keep writing books. Um, I mean, that's really the thing is I, I thought it would take me so long to get here. Um, and I am very, very lucky in that it hasn't, um, and very, I feel very fortunate and I'm uh, very thankful. Um, and now that I'm here, you know, I guess the good news is, um, I just want to keep making books. Like yeah. I'm, I'm really happy right now. And I, I, uh, the Marvel universe has been one of my favorite sandboxes for a long time. And even before I ever thought there was a chance to get paid for it, I like a lot of comic fans like to sit around and think about what I would do. And now that I get to do it, it's totally wild. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool. That brings us full circle to now the, the creative retreats and being in the room and playing with the sandbox and, and doing some cool stuff. Uh, you mentioned, of course, the X-Men stuff. Uh, before we get to X-Men, quickly, I just want to make sure some of our listeners know some of the projects that you've been working on. Of course, your first Marvel work was the Captain America Annual. Am I that correct? is correct. Right. I got to do the uh, Captain America Annual. I got to work with uh, amazing artists like Ron Lim. Like Ron Lim and Chris Sprouse. Chris Sprouse. Yeah. That is bonkers. That Wild. should be illegal. That, that was my first Marvel pull. I got Chris Sprouse and Ron Lim. Like, <laughs> I cannot believe that. Uh, I was incredibly lucky, and I was very, very proud of that book. It was beautiful. I had a really nice experience working on it. And most importantly, I got a lot of very heartfelt and wonderful feedback. And it was, you know, it was scary. You know, when you're given your first big Marvel work is 30 pages on one of the most iconic characters who means a lot of complicated things to a lot of different people. Yeah, and then from there, I did an issue of Marvel Knights uh, that was like Donny Cates, you know, kind of mini event that was a tribute to the 20th anniversary of Marvel Knights. And I uh, got asked to do like a few little backups and things. I just story in the X-Men holiday special, which, which was so I, fun. I, that was a very good little story. Hit me emotionally. That was that, that was like my one. I remember when they asked, they were like, "Do you want to do? Uh, do you want to do an X Men story?" And I was like, "Well, I want it to be about Cable, and I want it to take place on the longest night of the year." And they were like, "Well, well, Cable's dead." And I was like, "Well, it's Christmas. We're thinking about it." <laughs> so um, I, it ended up being about you know it's a hope story, but it, it's about hope and Cable on the long, and it's about you know the longest night of the year and, and how we wait for the sun because it's hope again and. It was one of those things where it was like you get sometimes you get one page and you're like, let's just have fun with it. And sometimes you get one page and you got something to say. And yeah. that was a really I, I was really lucky to get to do I, I don't, Cable's another character who I've loved for a very long time. So it's like very exciting for me to 
Yeah, he's cable. Yeah. We're like, look at him. Oh, he's I awesome. Mean, yeah, who doesn't want to be like, you know, who doesn't wish they were strapped to cable's chest while he kicks butt? Right? Oh, <laughs> I love those stories. So good. Um, recently, you've been working on Thanos, uh, which has been, you know, I, as I was reading it, I was like, this is such a sweet story in such a twisted way. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay, I see. Here's well, I mean, yeah, and, and how else do you do it? You know, like, um, like you know, the, the kind of part of that is because you know, Thanos is, is dead in the current, you know, continuity. So Gamora is able to say all these things that not only could she probably not get away with saying if Thanos was alive, she wouldn't have any interest. Like, why would you say anything kind about yeah. someone awful if they were around to hear you? But that whole death makes angels of us all sense. And it's like, you know, he, he did, for better or for worse, make me who I am. But it was really, really fun. I, I have a really good relationship with my dad, um, who's, you know, not quite like Thanos. But uh, there are certainly elements of Thanos and Gamora's relationship that are like echoes of my own relationship with my dad, um, who, again, you know, my dad and I are very close, but we're both kind of twisted. So <laughs> we, uh, we also have Age of Conan, Belit, which was a lot. I'd like, you know, I say this on our shows. I don't know anything about the broader world of Conan. So these books are my complete gateway into all these characters. And Belita was like, she's awesome. <laughs> she's so cool. And like, she's gnarly and terrifying. Yeah. And well, I'm glad that, you know, someone who, who doesn't have a, a more of a wider, you know, version of the, the Conan universe comes out of Belita being like, oh, she's terrifying. Because it was it, sometimes one of the hardest parts about writing comics is that they come out a month apart, right? So sometimes you get to use that for real fun and make a lot of cliffhangers and everyone talks from, I mean, Anyone right now who's reading House of X and Powers of Ted is seeing that like every Wednesday people are just erupting with theories and and so that's really cool. Being part of that conversation is really cool as a comic fan. But with a story like Bleed, I was like, okay, well, we're not tying in. We don't, you know, we, and I want to I want to show who Belit becomes. So if you if you you know do know more about the larger Conan universe, you know that uh, you know Belit is his his true love, and she's this terrifying sort of sea witch almost kind of figure. She's the queen of the Black Coast. She's mad and she's destroyed all these people. And, um, you know, but she she loves Conan, of course, because he's the baddest there is. So and she's the baddest there is. So they get along. And eventually, you know, she she dies for him and it's all very tragic. But, you know, we don't really see in the Robert E. Howard stories anything about who, how she became that way. And to me, it was a much more interesting story to see this bright-eyed little girl become that person than it was to see her kicked from the beginning. So fans that only, you know, that that were picking up a Belit book, a lot of people were really struck by the first issue. And it's like, what is this? She's this cute little girl who wants to be a pirate someday. And and I, I did a lot of being like, I know. I know it looks weird <laughs> right now. I really know it. But, you know, one thing is is when you're writing comics, you're like, yeah, they're going to come out monthly and people are going to read them. But also the book is going to get collected and exist forever. So sometimes you have to just tell yourself, like, I have to think about how I want this to look and what I want it to say when someone gets it at the library in two years. Yeah. Um, but I'm really, I feel really glad that people bought in and that they, uh, they trusted it and, and that they also stayed on. There weren't people that picked it up and were like, Oh yeah, it's a fun pirate book. And then we're like, Oh, just kidding. When it turned really dark, um, that people were intrigued enough by the journey to stay with it because we really, really do take her from the best day of her life to the worst. You know, we really do take her from, the weird girl because she's special and she has a heart for the sea to just a fully insane warlord. That was blast. Yeah. Especially in Hyboria where you can just do sure. wild stuff. Crazy monsters and yeah, stuff. It was a lot and of like fun. Snake gods and yeah. stuff. Um of course Death's Head. Um I love Death's Head from 
I think for me it was weird because I became a fan of Death's Head 2 before I became a fan of Death's Head the like OG. Sure. And then I was like, Death's Head 2, he's so cool. Look at him. He's like so 90s. And then I realized that Death's Head original is way cooler, more nuanced, really interesting, fascinating character. So, okay. So for me, uh, I guess I'll, I'll talk a little about how, how that happened. Um, so when Sarah, the editor, came to me about, about Death's Head, and she was like, you know, and, and not a lot of us, not, more people should know him. So team him up with someone we know. Go nuts. Team him up with someone we know. So of course, he's a robot. He's my favorite. I'm like, Iron Man. So I write this pitch about Iron Man. And this was like right before I think Dan Slott's Iron Man run had started. So I wrote this whole crazy thing about AI and identity and <laughs> Tony and this robot. And it was like just way too close to Dan's Iron Man run, which I love. So I was like, mm, I see. Like, I don't, you know, it, it, it's like either you lean too far in and it becomes a tie-in or you lean too far out and we're retreading the same beats. Let's go back to the drawing board. So I really sat with it because I was like, and I think I even said like something at the point was like, I don't know. What if I just stick him with like the Young Avengers or something? And then it was like, well, hold on. Maybe I have something here because we look at all these versions of, of Death's Head. And and, and to me, uh, you know, as a 33-year-old as a woman, I've thought a lot about issues of obsolescence and, and replacement. And it's a thing I think a lot of us think of, you know, it's like when you, you get too old to relate to the kids, are you too old to be useful? But at the same time, you know, Wiccan and Hulkling aren't kids anymore. They're adults now. They have an apartment. They're engaged. Um, and yet they're still viewed as the young Avengers a lot, even though they've been on – they were in Al Ewing's new Avengers. They've right. been Avengers. You know, Teddy's – you know, all these, this space air and Wiccan's going to be the demiurge someday, but everyone just still thinks of them as kids. Whereas Death Head kind of has the opposite problem, right? Everyone sees him as old and obsolete, but he's still got plenty of love to give. Um, so uh, that kind of stuck on something for me. I got really into this idea of obsolescence and replacement, and I decided that nothing would scare Death Head more than a younger version of himself. Yeah. And it couldn't just be a new version that was bigger and badder. And, you know, when I thought about it, I kind of thought about, like, like Wally and Eve, right? Mm. Like, it was like there's um, – in, in that, you know, there, there's a line that one of the, the characters says, which is, like, what a – you know, big and dumb. What a simpleton's way to make you great. Like, the idea that, you know, when we thought about computers and what they would look like, we imagined, oh, well, they're huge now and they're just going to get bigger and more impressive. But that's not really the truth. The future is smaller, sleeker, fits in our pockets. So a death's head who is he's you know supposed to be from a future where that that was the future but the future now looks different and so now the things that are cutting edge to him look weak but are actually far they have far more of an advantage than mm -hmm. he does like there's a joke we make where uh one of the characters is able to find a map to a location because he was built there so he can connect to the Wi-Fi and death's head's like I don't know what Wi-Fi is yeah I like, love that whole thing like that, that, that sequence was so, so much fun <laughs> Okay, so for, you know, you are not lacking in cool projects because you have Strike Force, which as we record this, it's coming out next two weeks from I read it this morning and it hasn't yeah. come out yet. And um, so I, what is the story uh, behind Strike Force? I don't know. I was going to ask you. I was like, now that you've read it, do you think I deliver? <laughs> it, it, it was cool. I like. I love the team. Uh, I, I love shapeshifter stories. Yeah. And so that's a big part because they are – they're one of the scariest, like actual, not that like not actual for us, but like horrors that you see used in any kind of story because it's so. Then you start questioning yourself. Yeah. Oh my question god. Reality. I have an entire like mental essay about Freud's concept of the uncanny and then the uncanny as an adjective for the X Men because they look human but aren't. Like, there's an entire. <laughs> oh boy, could I get into Freud's <laughs> the uncanny? Um. So, <laughs> Sigmund Freud's uncanny X Men. Um. 
yeah, the story for Strike Force uh, is it, it started as um, you know a strike. Force. We wanted to do a book about a Strike Force who does you know cool jobs. I got a lot of leeway to figure out what who I wanted on the team, what I wanted to do, which is why a lot of it's very weird. Um, I love uh, I love weird characters. I love I'm definitely one of those people who a lot of my favorite characters are those characters that only show up sometimes. And I kind of thought it was a fun way to a fun way to challenge them is to force them to stay out of the way, right? Like there's kind of a, a meta joke there about characters who aren't in books enough having to physically stay out of the way. Well, so what we started with Strike Force, we you know we, we needed to give them a problem. You know that was the editorial discussion and everything it was like we, we got to give them something to do. And there were so many things that, you know, I started thinking of, of, you know, like all the great monsters we think of, like vampires, which, you know, Jason's doing incredible things with already with Blade and vampires and Avengers and, you know, mummies and this and that and the other. And, and the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, I want I want to make my own monster. I want to make my own threat that's completely new. And part of the fun of that is I can give them my own rules. And with those rules, I can build a story. Because of the nature of the monster that I got to create, I got to create a challenge for them where they have to solve it. They've been targeted by this threat previously, but none of them remember it except for Blade, who shows up to kind of get them together after they've been framed by their own doppelgangers in front of the Avengers. And Blade handles the situation not just because it's creepy stuff and Blade wants to cut it in half, which he does, but also because he knows about this threat and he knows that it's almost a virus of thought and that if the Avengers find out about it, they'll be threatened. And the last thing we need are a bunch of evil Avengers doppelgangers. I love that scene where he's standing behind them and he's like, well, I can't tell any of them about this. Yeah. And he's like, I got to go. Yeah. Like there's, there's, and that's one of the things that I really put into the pitch of like, you know, you have that moment where you're like, well, why would a character do this? And, and what's the compelling reason that you get someone to do something unexpected? What does this threat mean to Blade? And the thing that I figured out that I thought was the most compelling is that this threat scares Blade. Like what, what scares Blade? Yeah. Like. But it's like the, this thing, and he he knows that because it's such a strange threat, he not only, you know, though he won't admit it, can use the help, um, like Angela and, you know, people like Jessica Drew who have experience with being replaced with doppelgangers are obviously useful on the team. You know, Wiccan's a character I love who always has his fingers in some strange stuff. But really, it was it was about characters that I thought had something to say about identity and something to say about fear. And characters who, to me, all have something in them that they're wrestling with yeah. over this. I mean, even characters like Monica. And, like, you know, you see, like, in the first issue, you know, you, you, you see Captain Marvel, like, go to bat for her friends. She's like, I'd die for Monica Rambo. Like, you know, I don't trust she did anything bad for a second. But um, but they, you know, it's, it's not that they've done bad things. It's that they're victims. They've been targeted by yeah. something big and bad. And it's something that only they can stop. I'm really glad that you say you were able to create this new threat for uh, for the team because I was reading the book and I was like, I don't know this race, this this group. And so I started Googling and like looking all around for like Norse mythology. Like I started trying to figure out the history of, how do you pronounce it? The Verdai. Verdai. And I was like, where do they come from? And I just like left it because I couldn't find really anything of particular. Can I tell you my favorite thing about that? Yeah. You know, that's like exactly what the characters do, right? Like, I mean, imagine, like, imagine you find out about this threat and you're supposed to have known what it is, but you can't find anything about it and you don't remember it. And you're not sure if it's real, but you're like, do you ask about it? Like, what do you I mean? So it's like it's cool because you're having this kind of parallel experience where you're like, wait, this threat is massive. Who who are they? Well, how is it affecting them? You know, you don't know the rules yet either. And neither do they. And we learn them as our heroes, 
you know, do better. Because I, I promise I'm not going to write a book where they all just get put in the ground in five <laughs> issues. I mean, it's happened before. It's happened. Yeah. And especially when I first heard the name Strike Force, I thought we were doing a new Strike Force moratorium. Yeah. Where, like, that, that is part of the story. Uh, but no, this, this was a lot of fun. Um, so fans will have to check that out. And of course, you've just mentioned recently Jonathan Hickman, who he's kickstarted. He's, he's, uh, <laughs> thrown the entire comic world in disarray with his House of X and Powers of Ten. How'd you get involved in this new direction for X-Men? Um, so this is one of my favorite stories about the whole X-Men thing. Uh, so I had just, like, it was last, I guess, fall. I, I really started regularly working for Marvel and regularly getting emails and, and messages and, and stuff from fans, uh, most of them kind, some of them strange. But by and large, you know, as, as, you're, as you write books and more and more people read them. More and more people have stuff to say about them. And, and, and I, uh, so I get this email from a, an email I don't recognize, and I open it, uh, and it's a wall of text about the X Men. And I was like, "Who is this weirdo sending me? <laughs> I don't know this person sending me all of these emails about." The, and it took me a second before my my vision focused, and I was like, "Oh, I, I know this weirdo. This weirdo is one of my favorite writers on the planet." <laughs> Oh, my God. I had never met or spoken to Jonathan before because I had always been too nervous to bring him my books at conventions. He's such a big brain. I was, like, scared to talk to him, which I've told him, and he laughed at me uh, <laughs> in, a, in a friendly way, but he, sure. he did laugh. Um, so I get this email, and I read over it, and my mind was blown. I had heard, like, a lot of people, especially working at Marvel, I would heard that, you know, his taking over the X-Men uh, and kind of reestablishing the status quo. I'd heard that it was a big change. Um, I didn't know anything about it because it was all very, very protected at that point. I had no idea what the changes were going to be, but they were, you know, everyone was kind of like, what's going to happen? It was a very exciting time. And reading over everything, uh, and it, it was, you know, it was an email that was basically an invitation. It was it was like, I, I like your work. I've read your scripts. I think you know what you're doing. Uh, I think you've got something to say here. Let me know if you're in. And so I, I, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in, man. This is so cool. And I got a large amount of information sent to me and I studied it. I, I read it and I brainstormed. And But I kind of knew from the beginning when I read it what I wanted from it. And it was the idea that if the X-Men aren't running anymore, what kind of culture can they build? Um, because I've always been running. And one of the things was like this idea that magic is a art that requires practice and study when you you know when you hear stories about magic it's always you know Merlin going to a a tower and studying for 10 years but if you're a mutant that's constantly trying to survive where do you find 10 years to study I mean the answer I guess in X-Men is you go into the future and do it but (laughs) (laughs) but really like you know we're thinking culturally um what is new for mutants and it's this it's this idea the of of their own scholarly pursuits and access into realms and 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 how to harness that powers that so much other of the Marvel universe has powered uh, so yeah, I mean, that was kind of what I brought to the X-Men room was this essay. It was less of a pitch. I didn't really come in like I usually do with a pitch that said Excalibur, this many issues, here's my team, here's my log line, let's go. I came in with like an essay. and But if there was ever a person to present your bizarre high concept essay about world building to, it's Jonathan Hickman. So yeah. um, I presented my my thoughts and, and he was like, cool and him and Jordan looked at each other and they were like that sounds like the Excalibur book we need I mean it was, it's really my baby you know I, I I everything that I've done with this book it's not prescriptive it's responsive you know it's it's I've said these things because Jonathan says here's the rules give me a story and I say okay here's the story and he's like okay cool like give me more rules uh, now you build some rules um one of the really cool things about the X-Men books right now is because we all work on them together and we're all really communicative not just 
me and my artist and Jordan and Jonathan, but the other writers, the other artists, we're all reading each other's books and each other's scripts. It feels so real and lived in because it's like, oh, I need a boat ride to somewhere. I guess we call Kitty Pride for that now, you know? Oh, I need, uh, you know, I, I need this handled. I need that handled, you know? Like, I have a magical thing that's a problem. I guess we call the Excalibur team now. Like, we've built out these, you know, roles. And you'll see more and more of that in the, you know, in the Wave 2 books and stuff. You'll see that we just continue. And, and the books that we're making are not what's the mandate title that we should put out now. They are what what does Krakoa need? What are the X-Men revealing to the world now? How is this culture naturally evolving? Yeah. Does this book, how does this book, or really any of these new books tie to the originals with that title? So, you know, we have Excalibur, we have uh, X-Force, we have different titles, um, Fallen Angels. And, yeah. like you know, I think there's a lot of speculation from some people who have read those old books or even who are like, oh... I just researched and there's this old title with the same name. Is there a connection? Um, yeah. Well, so one thing I think was really cool, and I actually didn't realize this until I was like in the room this week and brought it up and was like, oh, is that intentional? House of X and Powers of Ten are completely new titles. They're things that people have never seen before. And it's great. I think they're really effective because they're accurate. They're interesting. They're easily abbreviatable. People, they're, they're great. Like you can tell I worked in marketing before I was a writer. <laughs> they're very good. But then all the book titles are classic titles, which I think is really intriguing people because I think people expected to see House of X, Powers, and Ten, Powers of Ten, and then see a whole new lineup of, you know, X Men they'd never seen before, and 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 you know that's that's not what we're doing. You know, we're this is this is in a lot of ways it's completely new, while in a lot of other ways being a return to form. So our big tie with Excalibur is obviously one of the big reasons where Excalibur is because Captain Britain is on the team, but the other reasons are because of the there's a very specific tie to the other world. The first arc is very, very much about the other world. I mean, because imagine if, it, you know, why would the Captain Britain title change hands, which I won't spoil it for you, you read it in the book, but when it does, that has an effect on the other world. I mean, the Captain Britain, if, if you're not a huge aware of it, is more than just a Captain America figure for, for England. He's also a sort of mystical defender. Um, and there's something really interesting to me about this specific iteration of Betsy as Captain Britain, because this is not Betsy Braddock, citizen of the UK, being Captain Britain. This is Betsy Braddock, citizen of Krakoa, being Captain Britain. And the previous Captain Britain is a human. It's Brian Braddock is human, uh, her, her twin. Um, Betsy is a mutant. And when mutants have just come out and said, we have our own nation, and then one of them steps up to defend another nation, there's a lot of complexity around that. And it's fun because it's a political complexity we can deal with and make our own political complexity without having to, you know, it's part of comic books is it's escapism. So. Yeah. Uh, listening to what your plans are and some of the, the further reaching things, uh, it, being in the room this week was very exciting. Oh, I'm good. Looking, looking forward to it. Um, uh, we'll end on a, a note. I think a lot of our listeners, we mention the retreats all the time and we talk about you know, oh, I remember hearing about that, you know, six months, a year down the line. Do you have a, a fun anecdote or something, a, a good memory from this week being in the uh, in the retreat that you can that doesn't spoil? Anything? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's first of all, I got to meet Zeb Wells this week, who is hilarious and awesome. And he was such a good like those retreats get really exhausting, you know, not just because anyone who's a creative who's listening to this knows that when you're a creative person, being creative feels like the only thing in the whole world you can do. But it also feels like the most exhausting thing in the whole world. Like it's like 
sometimes I, I mean, okay, I don't have kids, so I won't speak out of school. But sometimes I feel like, you know, getting a book ready is like having a baby once a week. Or I'm like, I love it so much. And my whole brain thinks about it. And all I can think, and then I have to, like, who was it? Was it Kelly Thompson? Someone once described pitching as imagine you spend nine months making a baby you love very much. You give birth to it and just football it out to sea and hope it swims back. Um, it's kind of what making books is like. But uh, I got to meet Zeb, and it was great just to have him, like, in the room being funny um, and he hearing. He killed. I, I won't say what he was talking about. But he killed The, the yeah. end of the third day of the retreat, just slaying the room. Everybody was cracking up oh in my tears. God. It was so good. My fondest memory, I think, though, is that uh, Zeb was talking about um, – we were all making jokes about amazing mashups between animals and heroes. Uh, I won't spoil why, but we were all we were all making jokes about animals and heroes mashed up. And 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 I will, <laughs> I suggested that there should be a version of Venom named Teddy Brock, who's a teddy bear, <laughs> and Scotty Young drew it. And Jonathan told me that I'd earned my plane ticket with that joke. <laughs> so I may not have contributed anything actual to the room, but uh, Scotty Young drew a teddy bear as Venom. So that was the highlight of my week. There you go. <laughs> I think that's perfect. I, I, I will try to reach out and, and get that, yeah, that <laughs> like Teddy Brock sketch. Teeny, <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. All right, we're about to head into our community section. But first, a question of the week. I know we didn't really get to do a big talk this week because Japan and baby and <laughs> uh, Japan baby has made us both very tired. But our question of the week is, who is your favorite Marvel spooky character? Yeah, that's right. There's so many uh, good ones. Do you have a favorite monster? I know Fing Fing Foom seems right. but I, w- I want to think more like the horror side as opposed to the monster side. I think I would I, I, I lean towards Damon Hellstrom because he's like sexy. And he's got a deep V. Yeah, deep V or no shirt. Yeah. I love it. He's just like, shirt? What do I need a shirt for? Half of me is on fire. Yeah, well, listen, if you literally are in the hottest place that's ever existed, go shirtless. Yeah, uh, but he's got morals and he tries to like help some people and he's an interesting character and there have been some cool like darker takes on him. He's been showing up in a bunch of books recently. I like I like Hellstrom a lot. Uh, I'll go Elsa Bloodstone. Oh, yeah. Because she's like fabulous and sort of British and like, I shoot monsters, pew, pew. Yeah. Uh, so let us know who your favorite Marvel spooky character is using hashtag this week in Marvel. You can email them to twinpodcast at marvel.com or hit us up on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this week in Marvel. Uh, we got some tweets in here. First up is from T. Bizzlesworth. He says, best horror artist. Once again, I'm going with your Immortal Hulk suggestion. Joe Bennett's drawings are just the best. Oh, they're so good. I know. So that was a question from last week, Lorraine. Do you have oh. a favorite Marvel horror artist? Uh, Joe Bennett is someone that came up. We talked about Richard Corbin. We talked about Mike Plug. We talked about uh, Bernie Wrightson. We talked about a whole bunch of artists. Oh, God. Well, Kirby and Gene are amazing. Also, I was thinking of um, Weird World artist... Who does Mike Del Mundo? Mike Del Mundo. Yeah. It's not like super horrific, but I just always feel like he messes with your mind when you look at his work. Yeah. Which I think is super fun. Totally. All right. Ralph Williams said, Did the Hulk ever lead a team of superheroes? He's not really the team lead type, but he was the lead of Hulks. Yeah. All of the Hulks. Yeah. When they hulked out together. But in his professor oh, persona, that's true. That's when he, true. he wore the, the black tank top, 
uh, and he had the like the haircut. You know what I'm talking about? And he was a talking, thinking, smart boy, uh, but also still very strong. He led. I think it was it might have been called the Pantheon. If I remember correctly, uh, I don't think he's led a team of actual superheroes. He's always been like on there, disgruntled or sort of like off to the side adjacent. Brooding. Uh, yeah. But as a leader, yeah, you don't really want the Hulk as your leader. No, no. You don't want your tank leading usually. Yeah. That said, read Immortal Hulk right now. Mm, Some interesting yeah. developments coming, especially with uh, number 26 starting next week. Uh, Karis Pollard, our friend across the pond, says, Her This Week in Marvel of the Week goes to Strike Force. Yes, again. Well, it's funny, it's cool, and I really want to know what happens next. Plus, a Vegas setting and a bunch of smooching. What more could I want? I told you, there's smooching in Strike Force. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, Teeny. Teeny gets it. She knows what we want. Give us smooching. Give us some fighting and some sassy boys. Yeah. Uh, this episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Percy Verlin and Zachary Goldberg. The two of them are sitting here basking in the glory of their credit right now. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton, new to the team and just a generally great guy. Jill DeBoth is our director of audio. She's wonderful. Additional production help from Jamie Frevely and Emily Kimura. Uh, and special thanks to Werewolf by Night for being a freak in the streets and a uh, freak in the... <laughs> what does this say? Uh, who wrote? Which one of you? That's Persia. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I'm just being sure. All right, let's break this down. Special <laughs> thanks to Werewolf by Night, but a freak in the streets by day. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, that wraps up this episode of TWIM. Thanks, y'all, for listening. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe.